Welcome back to The Road to Seven with Sheila Cummins. I am your host, Sheila Cummins, and today I'm interviewing Natalie Molina Nino. And if you run a company that is looking for funding, would like funding, is interested in learning about funding, or is curious about what options for funding there are around you, then this is an episode that you don't want to miss. Welcome to The Road to Seven. I'm your host, Sheila Cummins. I am an entrepreneur, a mentor, an investor, a wife, and mom to three beautiful children. Women entrepreneurs are up-leveling and changing the rules for business strategy, leadership, success, money, and impacting the world every single day. The Road to Seven is the diary of business strategy for women entrepreneurs. We meet you where you're at in your business and champion you along the road to your vision. And I am honored you chose to join us today. Ready to go? Buckle up. It's time to hit the road. Natalie Molina Nino is Managing Director at Known Holdings. She is an investor, builder capitalist, author, educator, and retired global tech entrepreneur. As part of her work as a champion of women, communities of color, and the planet, she co-founded the Trade Organization for Builder Capitalism, a long-view alternative asset class to venture capital. In 2018, her book, Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs, was named one of Book Authority's best CEO books of all time. Molina Nino launched her first tech startup at the age of 20 and is the co-founder of Entrepreneurs at Athena at the Athena Center for Leadership Studies of Barnard College at Columbia University. She makes personal investments out of her family office, O Cubed, and prior to that, Brava Investments that she co-founded and served as CEO. In 2015, she stepped in as CRO of Power to Fly to help grow what is now the fastest growing online hiring platform for women in tech. You can see why she's been invited to this podcast, but wait, there's more. Natalie has advised organizations such as Disney, Microsoft, Goldman Sachs, MTV, Mattel, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. During her career in tech, Molina Nino co-led the launch and growth of a multinational business with Lionbridge. During her career in tech, Molina Nino co-led the launch and growth of a multinational business into a $100 million operation in over 30 countries within six years, including the inception of their strategic relationship with Microsoft Bing. Today, Molina Nino serves as a venture partner at Connectivity Ventures Fund as an advisor for Goldman Sachs launch with GS, Black and Latinx cohort. WOC Star Fund, Full Cycle, Axion Opportunity Fund, Vote Run Lead, We NYC, that's the Women Entrepreneurs New York City, and Hope, Hispanias Organized for Political Equality. In support of her efforts to make reproductive health care more accessible and affordable, she serves on the board of the National Institute for Reproductive Health and the American Medical Association Center for Health Equity. 
In 2019, she was honored with Schnepp's inaugural Women of Wall Street Awards for her influence in banking and finance and was named among People Magazine's most powerful Latinas. You can see why you need to listen to this episode. It is incredible. I first met my guest when I picked up her book, Leapfrog. And it was such an eye-opener. It was right when I was starting my research into getting investments, building a company that was sellable, going bigger than the Sheila Cummins brand. And Natalie's name kept coming up and coming up as someone who really understood the investment space. And so I picked up her book and have been following her. And I'm really excited for her new venture called Known Holdings. And I'm hoping, Natalie, that you'll talk to us today. Natalie, first off, thank you so much for meeting with me today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I, uh, as you know, have a special place in my heart for women who start things. So it's a pleasure to always meet a female founder. Well, thank you. And I think that that's probably the understatement of the year when you talk about women who start things because you are somebody who has started many things and completed many things and had your hand in many things. And I'd love to hear about how you got started in the entrepreneurial space. You know, you talk in your book about watching your grandma sew and you asked her to teach you how to sew and she said no. And I wonder if you could sort of pick up there to where you are now as managing director at Known Holdings. Yeah, it's been actually even just the last year, I would say, has been a big full circle I guess, ride, because for those that aren't familiar with the story, you know, my grandmother came as a grandmother to this country. So she already had adult kids and even grandkids back in Ecuador when she immigrated here. And then over the course of about 15 years, an impossible feat, I don't know how she did it, on the wages of a, of a seamstress in the sweatshops of Los Angeles, she managed to bring each of her adult children to the United States and their spouses and their kids. And my dad was one of them. And, you know, and that's how I I came to be. But she and I spent a lot of times in the sweatshops of Los Angeles and in that sort of deeply industrial right garment worker world. And I watched her. I watched her, her side hustle. She was very entrepreneurial. So in addition to her day job, she would spend the weekends making quinceañera dresses and wedding dresses for the community. It was how she made extra money. And I saw her make these beautiful things and I wanted to, what I thought, you know, very natural question. I wanted to learn how to do it too, right? And she took real deep offense to the question and I was probably six or seven. I did not know what could possibly be offensive about asking my grandmother to teach me how to do what she did so beautifully. And it was very much like that, you know, record comes to a screeching halt kind of moment in a movie where she just stopped everything that she was doing and she said no. I will absolutely not teach you to sew because you will not make a living using your hands. And I didn't understand what that meant, right? And and obviously, I differ and I disagree with my grandmother because I think that working with your hands is honorable work. You know, her work was honorable work. You know, we have a lot to be grateful for because she did that work. But I get what she was saying, right? She was saying, it's your job to progress us, our family forward. And you're going to do something different than what I've done. And you're going to, I think in some ways it was her way of saying, you're going to work smart, not hard, right? You're going to be strategic. And so to answer your question about what that brings me to, right? That meant that I really felt like I needed to depart from that. And so I, I ended up finding myself in a career in tech, starting a company, a dot-com back before the dot-com crash happened through a series of, again, hard work, strategy, but also luck. The 
tech industry treated me well. And a few years ago, I decided I was going to pay it forward, make it a little bit easier, I hope, for the people who come after me. And, you know, in some ways, work on paying it forward. I started the Center for Women Entrepreneurs inside of Barnard at Columbia. I wrote the book. And then I became an investor because I, when I looked at the challenges that women faced, it's not that women who are entrepreneurs have less experience, have fewer ideas. You know, I mean, there is no quantitative or even qualitative criteria on which women are lacking. Right. And so at the root of all these issues, in my view, it, it's really just a lack of capital. And so at the source of everything was finance. And so as my friends say, you know, maybe because I'm a masochist, I went from tech to finance. And what's interesting about the full circle moment is now I'm an investor, right? Now I invest in, in businesses and I especially focus on businesses that disproportionately benefit women in some very measurable way and increasingly communities of color where I see even less investment. But the full circle moment comes in that this year, a fashion company, garment worker, employer, right? One of the oldest and most well-respected brands in the lingerie space, Hanky Panky, who happened to be the last chapter in my book, invited me to be on their board. And it was this funny moment where I was like, I don't really have an expertise in fashion. You know, manufacturing isn't really my thing. And yet I heard my grandmother's voice, right? In the back of my head. And it was like, yeah, you can't say no to this. So that's where we are now. Moment. That's incredible. Take us back to your tech days. And then I want to talk about the investment that you do now. Did you go after investment as your tech startup? I did. I mean, I had, I had multiple companies and they all involved some, some form of financing. And because I was in tech, I think I did what a lot of people do, which is I thought that the only option I had was venture capital. And it wasn't until I sort of grew up and I understood that there were other options out there. I realized that actually venture capital represents about 0.05% of all business financing. 70% or more of typical venture capital portfolios fail. And the reason it feels like it's ubiquitous and it feels like it is the end all be all only option is because think about it. If you had, I don't know, an airline company that failed 70% of the time. How would you stay with it? You would have to hire right the best marketers in the world and just try to put as much lipstick on that pig as you possibly can in order to put it everywhere and make everybody feel that it was this sort of inevitable thing. And so, look, I think that there is a time and a place for venture capital, but it is a teeny tiny niche. And, you know, it took me a long time to realize that it wasn't my only option, right? And what's great about even just where we are today is that when I was starting, there also there there were other options beyond VC, but there were also some that just didn't exist. The laws, for example, didn't make it easy to do things like equity crowdfunding or even traditional crowdfunding, where you pre-sell your product before it even gets manufactured or created. You know, there were actually tangibly fewer options, and I think that's what's good about sort of where we are now is that. There truly are a lot of other ways that you can go when it comes to financing your company. NBC is one and it's a viable one, but it's a niche and it's inappropriate for most companies. And I can talk about all the reasons why. But yeah, I think that, you know, that's definitely something that I learned the hard way, which is that it's a difficult way to finance a company because you're ultimately giving away control of your company and you're giving away control to a group of people who have short term goals. Whereas I 
was hiring people in the hopes that I still had a job to give them in 10 years and 20 years, right? I was building something that I wanted to be a lasting thing that created a livelihood for a lot of people for, you know, the foreseeable future. Whereas I was working with investors who had a five-year fund and needed to see their return on investment in that five-year cycle. And so it was about hurry up and sell, hurry up and IPO. And it became very clear to me early on in my career that that meant that we had misaligned incentives. And that's a really tough thing to do when you're at the board table with a group of people who are meant to be supporting you and growing your company, but they're trying to exit and get the hell out in the next three or four years. And you, you're building a forever company. Not all of us are, but those of us who are, that's a tough place to be. I think that that moment of investment where VCs do come in and all of a sudden you, you as that business owner who has birthed this business no longer has full control and say over what happens is really difficult. And so I'm curious, you know, how you handled that. You know, how did you handle this imbalance in terms of expectations and desires, investors wanting a quick buck, you wanting to build this long term business that, you know, you're you were supporting teams for 10 to 20 years, as you said. How did you handle that sort of dissonance between the two? It meant that in subsequent ventures, I was really careful about who I partnered with. Mm. Right. I was more selective about who I took capital from then I think they are selective about who they give capital to, right? In some ways, what that ended up doing is changing the power dynamic where I was now, you know, there was a point in my career where it was like, well, why should I take your money versus this person over here, right? And also looking at exploring other routes of capitalizing, like I started to do joint ventures with other companies where maybe we didn't need an investor. Maybe you and I partner together and we join forces and together we're more powerful Right. Those things are possible. And I, I mentioned that in my book because a lot of people, especially in the small business world, think of words like mergers and acquisitions as, you know, high finance, big sort of corporate Wall Street kind of language. But what we know, and I actually quoted a friend of mine who is now at a bank out of DC that actually looks for small businesses to merge and acquire one another. And the case study that she gives is a, I think it was like a little yogurt company or a soft serve company or something like that, right? So brick and mortar, food related business, and they wanted to grow and they wanted to get a loan so that they could expand. But by virtue of just their revenues and their numbers as they were in that moment, they didn't qualify for the whatever, let's say $100,000 loan they're trying to get, right? But down the street was a competitor And if they had combined their finances and combined their sales and combined all of their numbers, they actually qualified not just for a 100K loan, but for a significantly larger loan. And so her idea to, you know, the person who walked in the door was, why don't you merge with your competitor down the road and I can give you then enough money to buy them and then to expand beyond that, right? And people think that those sorts of things are only for big companies, but I'm giving examples of little businesses that acquire other little businesses and turn into mid-sized businesses. And, you know, people forget that, you know, little businesses become mid-sized businesses and mid-sized businesses done right can become big monster global companies, right? And I think that that is the sort of thing that I want more entrepreneurs to know is possible, right? And I don't want you to just believe me. I want you to see the examples and see that other people have done it already. And I think that alternative funding and alternative financing, I think, is a place where women play really well. You know, one of the things that I believe in our core values are 
celebrate the resourcefulness of women. There's always a way to get what it is that you want. It's just not always the most linear path that everybody else has taken. And you're talking about, you know, thinking outside of the box. I think we're talking about two different things and I'd like to differentiate it. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about sort of the VC side of things for a little bit. And then I want to talk about you know, that micro business that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. We at Heart to Seven, we serve micro business. They're not large enough to get VC funding. They're usually a solopreneur. You know, they're making up to six or multi-six, some seven figures, but there's no space for someone to come in and be a 49% partner. Like it just, it doesn't make sense or 30%, 50, whatever it is. And even if there was, why would they want that? Why would they? And they don't necessarily need it. And Mm -hmm. so, But let's just, I I would still like to stick with this concept of VC because I think the stats don't lie, you know, and you put them in your book and I've read them everywhere. Of people who apply for VC funding, 2 to 2.5% are women. Of that 2 to 2.5%, 0.1 to 0.3% are women of color who receive funding. So if we could talk about that for a moment. And then I want to come back to the alternate funding because I think that's so important for small business to be hearing. Why is there such a gender disparity between a perceived value of a company? Is it that not enough women are building these kinds of company or is it literally a systemic gender bias within the VC hallways? Well, I think when I've finished giving you the stats, you'll know the answer to that. Is there not enough of us? It turns out women are starting twice in the United States anyway. And this is, these numbers are not that different outside of the U.S. But in the U.S., women are starting businesses at twice the rate of men. And of those, going back to the numbers that you just cited, of those 8.9, it used to be 8 and the recent statistic jacked it up to 8.9 out of 10 of them are started by women of color. So it Turns out, and this was another thing, right? You were you were saying, you know, maybe these small businesses, or or maybe not everybody can get VC, and it's like, but let's be clear: a tiny fraction of businesses generally need VC or should even go anywhere near VC. It's 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 like taking chemotherapy for a, a headache. Mm-hmm. It's like if you have cancer, thank goodness there is such thing as chemotherapy. If you have a headache, it's ridiculous. Why would you want to do that? It would be terrible for you. And I think this is the same kind of thing. You can't apply VC to everything. It doesn't make sense. And in fact, it could be damaging and predatory. But if we are, to your point, staying in that space, there is no freaking way that less than 1% of all good venture compatible ideas are coming from women, women of color, especially given the stats I just gave you. It turns out we're not an anomaly. It turns out we are actually the majority. And then if you slice it even further, and you look at the actuarial data that says that, for example, women are the, over the age of 50 are twice as likely to be successful as anybody at entrepreneurship, then it becomes really, really clear that what's happening in the VC space has absolutely nothing to do with facts and data. And let's be honest, with making money. Because if Silicon Valley was engineered from the ground up to be a machine for maximizing the amount of money that they make, they would be swimming, first of all, in women over the age of 50. And... They would be swimming in the group of people who were the single most entrepreneurial demographic, right? Which is to say women of color. And so facts clearly don't matter. And I think that all that leaves really is biased, right? And and not rational decisions. And so I, I don't know if this is where you're going, but where I'm going with this is just that I'm done waiting for the existing group of people to wake up to all of this. These, this data hasn't really changed in a long time. And so where I'm focusing on is I'm focusing on making sure that in the future, more and more of the people writing those checks are women and people of color. And so I am focusing a lot of my energy on 
supporting those new fund managers and supporting those new and that next generation of investors, white women and people of color, so that we can see ourselves in the people who are making the decisions. Yeah. And so if you can't change the system, then create a new one. Which is leading us sort of to the alternate funding, which is what you've been sort of planting seeds about through our conversation yep. today. One of the things that we're doing at the Road to Seven is launching a micro lending platform and we're building an investment fund to be able to do it because the women we work with, like I said, do not have space in their businesses for partners. They just need cash. And so how would you suggest a company get ready to be able to apply and pitch for funding? Well, that's a big question. I think one of the first things that I would say is some, not everybody, right? But sometimes we focus on the sort of art and the customers and the sort of the real complexity of our business. And we outsource the, I would argue, more simple things like the tracking of the numbers, the run rate. When you're getting ready to go out and raise, and this is not insurmountable and every entrepreneur is fully able to do this. You got to get really, really conversant with those numbers and you got to get to the point where you can slice them and dice them and answer any sort of questions around the numbers. You don't have to be a financial professional to know that. You just got to know what are those basic metrics, right? What's your burn rate? How much runway do you have? What would you need in order to really double, triple, quadruple your revenues, for example? What are your margins? I mean, these are things that are super common sense things that do not require you be a finance person. They just require that you know the inner workings of that piece of your business. Mm. And it's fine if you've been outsourcing or your partner or maybe your accountant has been sort of managing those. This is the time to just study up on them and get really, really conversant on those things. And that allows you to then be super flexible and dynamic in a conversation where if someone throws some innovative idea and what if I gave you this or what if I gave you half what if I gave you double what would you do with it you have answers right on the ready to think about what you might do if you had less money than maybe you had hoped or if you had more money that you had hoped and have some good smart creative answers not only about your familiarity with that piece of your business but also how you envision growth happening right there are a lot of different ways to grow businesses there's not just one and you have to have a point of view specifically about why of the 10 roads that you could take on growing your business, you're choosing this one. Is it because it's better for you and your lifestyle? Is it because it's more aligned with your expertise? Is it because the market is asking for this kind of growth versus this other kind of growth? Why are you choosing to be a franchise rather than be like a Starbucks where you own all of the branches? What is the reason and the logic for that, right? As long as you have a strong, good, well-defensible point of view, you're going to walk into any conversation and look like a pro. Those are really great things because you're right. Of the small businesses, what's the number one hire people make first? First of all, it's a VA to help handle their inbox. And secondly, it's an accountant to handle all the bookkeeping. Because, you know, what you're talking about are things that are often associated with business school or going to an accounting or getting a certificate. But, you know, even in your book, you say one of the greatest hacks is just self-education. Go figure out what it is that you need to learn and go learn it. And those are very basic principles that are easy to learn and easy to understand. And no one expects you to know about pivot tables and Excel spreadsheets. What we expect you to do, and I think this is true of any kind of investor, is to know the story of your numbers. That's it. Know to be able to talk about why things look and perform the way that they do in your business. You've started a lot of companies. You've closed companies. You've sold companies. You've 
changed companies, you've pivoted. What has been sort of the biggest challenge along your journey that you've had to overcome? It's the thing that people don't talk about a lot, because if you think about what the headlines look like in business, and this is not just big business. This is, look, over the last, for example, two years, year and a half, right? How many stats have we seen in the news about hundreds of thousands of businesses that applied for stimulus funding because of COVID, that hundreds of thousands of businesses that went under, you know, because of the pandemic? I mean, we look at these stats or we look at 30% reduction in, you know, staff over here and, you know, such and such plant shutting down. We look sometimes at both growth and shrinkage, you know, success and failure in terms of stats. And the thing that we don't talk about enough, which was, I think, the hardest thing for me in my career, is what it feels like to look somebody in the face and say, I have to let you go. And what it feels like in your bones to think about the spouses and the children and all of the things that become, right, a domino effect that you are now impacting. And that gets lost in the stories about statistics or shutting businesses down, right? Those are the real facts and realities of what it is to start and grow a business and go through all the different sort of growing pains that sometimes you have to go through. Sometimes the company's doing fine, but you still have to let people go because you're changing direction. And I think that is probably one of the hardest things that I've had to deal with in growing businesses. And it's something that I think isn't discussed enough because I think when we lose sight of the humanity of these things and we talk about numbers and shutdowns and expansions and so on, we're dehumanizing what is ultimately a very human thing to do, right? We're hiring human beings to grow something. You are responsible for their livelihood. Well, I I feel like, you know, at least some of the clients that we've worked with, one of the things that has come out of COVID is that great reset and companies remembering that their their companies are actually run by people Mm -hmm. and that they're also selling to people. And the reason they're still in business is because of people. Yeah. How did... COVID impact you and your ventures and the people side of it? Well, I am in a privileged position to be able to have put most of my business on hold and repurpose both my partners and my team and and my own time to focus on, for the first time actually in my life, small businesses. So I have spent the majority of my career, like I said, in tech. And now even as you know, an investor, I'm focusing not on Main Street, right? I'm focusing on companies that are by design growth-oriented businesses. So I don't deal very often with the barbershop and the nail salon. And, you know, I stopped a lot of what I was doing. You know, I have a couple of very, my, sort of my favorite investments that required a whole lot of handholding during the pandemic. But short of those, the rest of my time was really spent in two categories. One, a good 50% of my time was dedicated to elections. So I donated quite a bit of my time there. And the rest of it was spent getting people in the US, right, PPP loans, connecting them to banks, figuring out solutions. Some good friends of mine, for example, got deeply involved in World Central Kitchen, the hundreds and hundreds just in New York City restaurants stayed in business because they were able to feed, right, first responders and use those kitchens for something productive. And so that's what a lot of the last year and a half was spent doing. And as a result, it reminded it brought me back to those early days of, for example, when my family immigrated here, right? That factory and those small businesses that my family all, you know, were were consumed with in the early years they were in this country. And so 
it was lovely in the sense of it was difficult to be on the phone with people at four o'clock in the morning, scrambling to try to get a stimulus loan or a stimulus grant, you know, because they're trying to save their nail salon or their barbershop or their restaurant. It was tragic and it was difficult, but it reminded me of how the economy in most parts of the world runs. This, that's really right. 70% of all net new jobs come from small businesses, Main Street, right? And I think that those of us that sometimes involved in things like high finance, we forget. We forget about those Main Street businesses and how important they are and how fragile they are in an environment like the one that we're in, right? Where something like a pandemic could happen and people just could be blown out of the water overnight. Yes. I spent the first sort of couple months coaching around the clock and a lot of time it was, you know, the message was pretty strong. Hang tight. Do not make a fire hose decision right now. Do not burn down your building. Just hold tight. Let's just wait this out. Let's get through tomorrow and then we'll talk again the next day. And it was just those micro decisions that these small businesses made. And those who made powerful micro decisions are the ones that are still in business today. And those who made rash sort of scarcity decisions are no longer around. And it's a pretty clear delineation anyway within our client base. It's interesting. It is. It's based in people. All of this is based in people. I have two questions and I'm going to let you go. First question, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were starting out in your career? I think the thing that I know now that is so powerful and influences everything that I do or maybe everything I say is that when I was starting, I would read business book after business book. And I would find that 10% of those books were relevant to me. And so I determined and I concluded and I somehow, I don't know, totally integrated this idea that I was an anomaly by virtue of being a woman, by virtue of being at the time, right, a young woman, by virtue of being a child of immigrants. All of these things just, I thought, put me in the place of, well, the reason that 90% of this is not relevant to me is because I'm an outlier. And what I know now is that I'm not an outlier. <laughs> what I know now is that the business media, for whatever reason, <laughs> focuses on this teeny tiny percent of largely niche experiences and that the majority of us look like me. The majority of us are women. The majority of us are people of color. The majority of us are actually, when it comes to successful entrepreneurs, actually we're immigrants, right? And so that's the biggest thing that I kind of wish I knew earlier, right? If I had known that my experience was actually more representative of the majority of entrepreneurs, I think I would have had a little bit more of a kick in my step. I think I would have walked into every room, you know, with my head held a little bit higher and I would have made more demands of the ecosystem that purported to support entrepreneurs, right? And I would have maybe been more bold about saying, yeah, this doesn't work for me rather than this doesn't work for me. Let me keep scraping to try to figure out, you know, where the resources are that might work for me. And so I, I wish I knew that earlier and I definitely wish more people integrated that. But they belong. Yeah, that they absolutely, especially women when they're fighting for a space at the table, that they belong at that table and that they bring an enormous amount of value to that table because, you know, until you get there, they maybe have no idea what they're actually doing for the majority of us. Right. And and you become a voice of sanity in a room that seems to be a little bit clouded in La La Land. Right. Yeah, I agree. Final question. So what next? Tell us about known holdings. Tell us about what's next for you, Natalie. Talk to us. The other thing that happened during the pandemic was all of this sort of panic pledging and giving post the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. And, you know, and we could go on and on. There was this sort of movement and it became obviously a global movement to really look at the inequities in the system 
especially in the financial system. In my industry, there was a whole lot of pledging and giving from banks, from foundations, from all sorts of folks. And some of them were grants in the philanthropic area, and some of them were actual investments to businesses. And when I looked at that and stepped back and kind of saw the whole movement of things that were happening, I thought, you know, even if 100% of these pledges turn out to be real, now the statistics, of course, tell us that 95% of them were not. But even if 100% of them had been, we will still be left in a situation where a handful of people have now gotten some capital but people of color still don't own the infrastructure of the economy. We don't own the banks, the insurance companies, the wealth management firms, the wealth advisory firms, the fidelities, the vanguards that manage our 401ks, our pension funds, on and on and on. We are not actually in a position of ownership of those key pieces of infrastructure that ultimately power the world. And so what Known Holdings is, it's a growth engine. It's basically a platform that is dedicated to taking all of the black, brown, indigenous, owned banks, insurance companies that are all there, but they're all tiny. They're all subscale. Even the ones that are success stories. When you think about people like John Rogers, who he and Melody Hobson are sitting on a very successful business. But when you compare their business to other people who started their businesses around the same time, they're managing a handful of billion dollars and their peers who started around the same time are managing hundreds of billions and in some cases, trillions of dollars. For no good reason, because these are wonderful investors who should be at a comparable level. And so what we're looking at is all of that machinery that could easily run an economy that if you look just at Black and Latinx community, for example, in the United States, it's a $3.9 trillion economy that we power. That is the fifth largest economy in the world. We need to own the banks and the insurance companies and all the other infrastructure that powers that economy, right? Otherwise, we're renting a room in someone else's house and it's time we own the house. So. That's what Known Holdings is, is it's a growth engine and a platform and a kind of mothership to take and grow all of those businesses that are currently subscale, but shouldn't be. Awesome. It must be so fulfilling on a day-to-day basis, your work. I mean, it's fulfilling to try. Call me in a few years to see where we see. <laughs> Natalie, looking at your track record, I have full faith in you. You know, I think that, and this is true, I think for all entrepreneurs, if you're so passionate about something that that even if it fails, you won't regret having spent the next few years of your life, Yeah, then you pretty much know you're doing the right thing. Nailed it. Natalie, thank you. I know that our listeners are going to want to follow you, connect with you, learn from you. Where should we be sending them? In social channels, I am everywhere as my full name, Natalie Molina Nino, and in places where they have a character limit, it's just Natalie Molina. And nataliemolina.com is my website. But, you know, you're going to have to just brace yourself for a combination of puppy photos and business. (laughs) And, you know, depending on what political catastrophe we're in the middle of, some sort of activism. So if you're ready for all of that, then please tune in. (laughs) I think it's see puppies and business. It sounds like a beautiful mix. Natalie, thank you for your time today. I'm so grateful for this conversation. I would love to just keep talking with you. I could talk to you for hours. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Those people who picked up the phone when entrepreneurs needed it most in the last year and a half are, are really doing the important work. So thank you. Mm, it's a pleasure. We'll talk soon. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to The Road to Seven. 
If you found value in what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star rating and a written review. You might just get a shout-out on an upcoming episode, and you never know when I'm going to be mailing some surprise treats to our reviewers. Make sure to subscribe so you automatically get notified when new episodes are released. Are you looking for a way to connect with other entrepreneurs that are facing the same challenges as you? I'd love to connect with you in the Road to 7 Facebook group on Instagram and LinkedIn. Just head to SheilaCummins.com. You will find all the links that you need right there. Together, we'll explore more ways to support your shift into action so that you can grow your business to finally match your vision. I love aligning your vision of success with strategic and intentional actions because that is how we will grow your business to match your vision. I focus on women, all women, because women hold the keys and the power to creating a powerful and positive world through their impact. We'll see you on the next episode.